Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're going to talk to Nigel and we're going to talk about Intelligent Voice. Intelligent Voice is a company that provides solutions that are leveraging AI, trying to get the instructions just like you would normally give to anyone by voice and then turn them into action. And they do this for financial services and other sectors. So we'll talk about that and also how does that differ to other voice assistants that you have home at home and maybe you don't like them to listen to you and maybe now they're just going to enter the conversation as well. Hi Siri. Nigel, how are you today? Yeah, I'm great, Rudy. Really, thanks very much for having me on the podcast. Brilliant. So tell us please first, how did you get to do what you do today? Oh, okay. That's a long story. Let me see if I can do the short version of it. I actually trained as a lawyer. I'm a technologist by passion, but I actually trained as a lawyer. And my dad told me, I walked into his office, he sold he sold PCs back in the 70s. He was the first person to sell PCs in Europe in the 70s. And I walked into his office when I was 18 and I said, Dad, I want to do what you do. I want to sell computers and do all this sort of stuff. And he looked at me and swore at me for the first time in his life and said, if you've got any idea how hard it's been to start a business and do this, he said, go and get a proper job. I went off and became a lawyer. And what he said to me is at the end of it, you come back and we'll talk. And if you want to be a businessman, that's great. So I went off, I became a lawyer, worked for a lot of US tech companies, came back, went into his office when I was about 35 years old and said, dad, guess what I've done out of, you know, did the job thing. And he said, what are you talking about? No, I said, do you remember we had that conversation when I was 18? I said, I've left my job. I'm ready to start something. And he just had no idea what I was talking about. So my start in technology came from a misheard, misunderstood conversation with my dad when I was 18 years old. So I was at the age of 35. I had no job because I'd left it thinking I was going to start my own business. So I actually got into natural language processing through an investment I made in a small tech company, got really interested in it. And in about 2008, when the financial crisis hit, I was looking at the market thinking, maybe there's a way we can use this, this natural language processing, this NLP technology to help us understand what went wrong because people were using email and chat. And then I thought maybe voice as well. People were on the telephone. So can we take all this information and listen into it? So the long and the short of it, I became an accidental owner of a software company that I started back in 2008 trying to listen into phone calls and read emails and so on on the trading floor so that's how i got here all right i think there is a connection to being a lawyer and listening around the traders conversations right <laughs> but in any case what is the problem that intelligent voice is solving and also why is it worth solving why do we need another voice solution it's we're right back where we started on this one which is there is still an issue in in banking in financial services around around the type of things that people are doing day to day on the trade floor 
So a lot of our work is in helping in compliance and surveillance to try to ensure that basically people are doing the type of things they're supposed to do. So they're not saying things they shouldn't, they're not trading in a way that they shouldn't. But increasingly, we're seeing that compliance line being blurred a bit. Post-pandemic, a lot of people working at home, loads of people on Teams meetings. So what we're actually now seeing is people using our technology to try and record meetings, to get a summary of the meeting, to get value out of voice conversations. So really, for the first time, I think people are seeing that voice is a channel that can be used like email. You know, we keep all of our emails, we search all of our emails, we might stick into SharePoint, we might leave it in our email client. We can turn voice into something really similar and turn it into an asset now for knowledge management as well as for surveillance. So it's really interesting, this journey that we've been on from surveillance through to knowledge management, which has been catalyzed by the pandemic. So that leads me to another clarification question. Who are your key clients? Are they enterprise clients, the banks, the trading firms, or who? I would say our key clients to date have been enterprise clients. So yeah, banks, insurance companies, government, police forces, people for whom, people who've got a privacy problem. So we're really big around privacy and security of data. We're not saying to we're not saying to people send your your voice to our public API and we'll process it somewhere that we don't tell you about and people who might you may or may not trust could look at. So yeah, we we've always dealt with people who've got really serious privacy issues. Right, so enterprise clients and expanding the use case from compliance only to knowledge base, I get that, but Let's describe it in plain English. How does this work? Imagine that you're on a phone call or you're on a Teams meeting. So what the system does is it takes the audio and video feeds from that meeting. It converts it into text using high quality speech recognition algorithms, often in different languages because people often switch languages during during the call. Having got that text, it then runs it through what you might call an understanding algorithm. So people are kind of really wild about chat GPT at the moment. Well, we use a lot of similar technology in the background to try and get understand the themes and meanings and summary of what took place in that meeting. That can then go through into a review platform so that from a compliance or surveillance perspective, someone can take a look at a call that we've identified that might be potentially suspicious and then flag it for further human review after that. So that's the compliance use case. There's other use cases, but that's probably the, the key one in technology terms there. All right, but so let's talk about it a bit more. So what is your tech angle? Is that proprietary technology or it's a bundle of third-party technologies? And secondly, you mentioned that, all right, you don't want to do a black box. You don't want to outsource it to some off-site location that you might not trust. So how do you keep improving? Because there's been a lot of controversy about voice AI algorithms where they still need human intervention and you can then turn it into a scandal easily if you read certain tabloids in the UK, right? Yeah, ab- absolutely. So to answer the first question about the technology, so the majority of the technology that we use is stuff that we've developed ourselves. So we've been in this game for kind of 13, 14 years now. But the underlying algorithms for things like speech recognition are widely used throughout the industry. We take algorithms which are widely used. We then use our own proprietary data and technology to build our speech speech recognition algorithms, our NLP algorithms on top of it. So we've got a big bank of data that we use to do that training. And we were the first company actually to use 
GPU cards to do speech recognition. GPUs, for people who aren't aware, used to be graphics cards, but are now the backbone of, of building these big NLP models. You need thousands of them to build a big NLP model. But yeah, so our a lot of the technology, as I said, is proprietary technology, and it needs to be for that second thing, because problem with the problem with a lot of algorithms is, yes, they're only available in the cloud. And that means that you are potentially sacrificing the privacy of your data by sending it out to a cloud provider. And a lot of our business comes from people who started off using, say, an Azure Cognitive Services or Google's Speech-to-Text API. And then when they go to their chief security officer and say, here's the product we're intending to build, the security people flip out and say, but we don't know where this data is being stored. We don't know how it's being processed. So that, that gives real problems. And you're right. If you look at the press, we've seen all sorts of scandals around Amazon reviewing people's Alexa data in Romania, a whole office block of people listening into that. Whisper, which is the new yeah. open AI product, again, they have been, they, there's all sorts of things that they've been doing in terms of listening to what people have been saying. GPT-3, using people in Kenya to review hate speech and hate material. So we've actually got a team of people who work for us in-house and their job is to review data, to review output and to not use people's personal data. So we don't use data provided by our clients to improve our models. We have to look elsewhere to do that, but we never use private data. All right, all right. Now let's dig into this a bit, still a bit more, because if you are in the startup community, maybe you've noticed, but many people use Google Docs, right? And things like this. And maybe that gives away how aged you are if you're using Excel, for example, right? So there is a huge preference for using whatever is already out there to get going, right? If you need to bootstrap the first couple of years, maybe. So why not to use some existing voice solutions? You did mention some, maybe can you use Siri, Google Assistant and Alexa, hook it up to your systems and off you go? Or do you need something enterprise grade like in, in uh, like your company? You might expect so everyone should use intelligent voice for everything, but it's actually these things are always use case specific. There, there's a lot of reasons why using public APIs makes sense for people, and that's normally when the interactions that are taking place are not sensitive. You wouldn't want to use a public assistant or a public API for, say, your healthcare data. You wouldn't want to be talking to something where you were discussing very personal medical details or personal financial details. I don't necessarily particularly want to to tell Google about what's my bank account number or something like that. So I think that you have to understand that there are areas where you segment or don't segment, but still that's it's a compromise. And it's one of the real problems that we see at the moment is that, as, as they say, if we are the product in all of these things, in, in a lot of cloud services, the data that we provide is reused. And so you have to accept when you're using these services that you're sacrificing privacy. And that means, take Alexa as an example, you've got to let your users know where that data is going. And I went to a really interesting talk the other day about someone who's talking about what happens when you go into someone's house who's got another that... device. Alexa's listening all the time. Should you have a big sign up in your kitchen saying, I have an Alexa device, your everything you say could be recorded and sent to Amazon. So privacy 
is a real issue. But we do have some answers to this, Rudy, actually, which could potentially change the way people look at a lot of a lot of these problems going forward, if you're interested to hear about some of that. This is a great point. Now you're going to make me more paranoid. Anywhere you, I go, I'll just ask, Alexa, are you here? Maybe this is not a question for you, but I'm always interested in holistic solutions from A to Z. So you said you work with compliance, right? And during the pandemic, if there was a lockdown, the traders were trading from home. Now, let's say they are most of the time on the trading floor. But on the trading floor, it was always easier to control uh, what's going on because the traders couldn't even use their mobiles. But when you are recording conversations, meetings on Teams, etc., you know about them. But how do you ensure that they don't use other channels? There were banks who paid fines for using WhatsApp. You know, the employees were using WhatsApp for confidential conversations. So how do you work with compliance to ensure that everything is covered? And maybe you just cover one part of it. I get that. But maybe there are some other ways to connect it and get a whole picture. Yeah, absolutely. And we do a lot of what you might call multimodal surveillance as well. So we have connectors into email, we have connectors into chat. So, you know, Bloomberg chat, Reuters chat, that type of thing. So you can gather a lot more of this information. And we work with partners who do things like gather WhatsApp. The WhatsApp thing was a massive scandal because a lot of people knew what was going on. And the technology did exist to capture WhatsApp conversations. But of course, it's another expense. So there's there's really two, two sides to that question. One of which is capturing everything you know about. And then there's capturing stuff you don't know about. And a lot of the stuff about capturing what you do know about is, yeah, making sure that if people have a work phone, that it's locked down, it's only using certain types of app. Most most organizations that we work with have a Teams only policy. So you couldn't even start a Zoom conversation with someone because the corporate laptop and the corporate network cuts that down. But you've got that secondary problem, which is, yes, I'm at home. Maybe I have a personal mobile. Maybe I've got, I mean, God forbid, a landlines people have still that I can communicate on. So how do you capture that type of activity? And a lot of that is actually around monitoring other activity. So what you try and do is see people do things like say, call me on my mobile, call me on my personal mobile. I'll hit you up later. There's lots of trigger words and trigger phrases that you see, or sometimes you'll see a gap in monitored communication a kind of quote suspicious gap and you might see that on both sides of a of a particular conversation so a conversation was taking place between two people suddenly it drops out and then suddenly it comes back in again so you're looking often for patterns of speech or patterns of behavior that might identify use of unauthorized devices as well as authorized ones. Great thinking. And I think then you can combine it with analysis of trading patterns, right? Exactly. Uh, And then it's all clear, right? All right. I got that. All right. You talked about privacy and you talked about security, but there is a big topic when people talk about AI. How can you build an AI that is ethical or that is responsible? So it's explainable as well. So you you do say, look, we'll tell people that we use our in-house staff, etc., can you also explain how the algorithm works? Can you be that transparent? And how do you also work against the biases? Because you may also have an algorithm that tracks only certain people and maybe it shouldn't, right? So how do you deal with these sort of soft but 
very crucial topics and controversial ones at the same time. Yeah, this is a real big issue in the industry at the moment because there, there is an arms race between big providers at the moment. We see Microsoft trying to get, get GPT-3 or GPT-3.5 out as quickly as possible into Bing because they're losing the search wars. We're seeing Google then release their own assistant and then suddenly it all goes wrong in the middle of a live demonstration. Book have just released their own one, Llama. There's a whole bunch of these things out there. We're about to see GPT-4 apparently, which is I think 10 trillion or some unbelievably large number of parameters up from the 175 billion in GPT-3. And a lot of people just aren't, or they're thinking about the things you're talking about really, but they're not acting on it. The fact is, this type of model that we're building cannot be explained. That's the problem. There is so much data in there. These huge models cannot be explained. They cannot really be sensibly debiased. And we've seen a lot of people going out of their way to make chat GPT look pretty stupid and the supposed controls that are in place pretty stupid as well. And it's almost like we've put the equivalent of a kind of nuclear bomb on the desk of every single person with a laptop in the world, because the things you can do with these things are insane. So in terms of how we look at it, because we are very much on the, you've got to try and be responsible with this stuff. So we actually started working in explainable AI kind of about three and a half, four years ago. And a lot of the work we've done is around how do you build models which can be explained? So that if a decision is given, so we do work, for example, in insurance fraud. So an extension of the compliance work that we do. So listening into insurance claims, trying to say, was someone being deceptive with a particular answer? We have ways of showing exactly what it was in the answer that someone gave that made the computer say, yes, I believe that's why this person was being deceptive or whatever. Yeah, explainable AI is possible with these things, but not with these kind of unbelievably sized models. It can be done, but because of this race to try and get to the top, people aren't doing it. On the bias front, the bias one again is quite interesting because yes, we've seen a lot of models accidentally produce highly biased results. And the reason you get a biased result because you've got biased training data. Amazon famously were only recruiting young white college graduates using their AI algorithm because their AI algorithm had been trained on historical data. And all they'd done previously is the successful candidates were young white college graduates. So it's inevitable. So we, again, what you do is you actually build models to de-bias data. So you build a model which can identify pronouns, a model which can identify educational establishment establishments is a great one. That's a, that's another way in which you can bias the data. And you then have to have a feedback loop and the feedback loop needs to be able to explain exactly why a particular decision was reached. So you can debias the data before it goes in. It's hard, it's expensive, it requires a lot of careful thought, but I think it's one of the reasons why the EU is going the way it is at the moment with legislation which is to try and force people, to force big tech companies to think about this problem 
and do something about it because it can be done, but it is just expensive and time consuming. And it reminds me a podcast we did on cybersecurity on a blockchain a while ago, where there are some companies these days that are hired to audit the smart, for example. And apparently there is a list of them updated weekly where you can see which ones actually they said this DAO protocol or this smart contract is safe and then it blew up right so new startups who are going into this field they don't want to be on that list maybe the same thing could be done with explainable ai as well right maybe you do it on a sample basis fine but it would have to be significant statistically significant because what you do is great you provide documentation but it's self-regulation right so are they are auditors in this space or not yet? It's coming. And as a part of the new, the proposed EU AI Act is that actually you will have to have a CE mark. So like kind of safety marks for products on certain high risk algorithms, which in the main will be provided by external auditors to make sure to make sure that people are actually complying with the rules that they've set out for themselves, that things are ethical, that they're explainable. We've Interestingly, where, where we've seen a growth in this market is on the insurance side, that people are actually offering insurance against non-performance of models. So if somebody says my, so you can actually get an insurance policy now as a startup, which says you can go into a customer and it will guarantee that the performance that you purport to give around bias and all that type of stuff will actually be true and if not then there's an insurance policy which pays out to the client which i think is a really interesting approach actually because i think that really helps people in the startup community to be able to go into companies with confidence and say you can buy from us and if what we're saying is a lie then actually you will get all your money back so it's an interesting way of dealing with the problem yes sounds even better frankly yeah so let me follow up on one other thing you said before, that you can plug your solution to multiple sources, right? Whether that's related to apps or mobile phones, lead lines, etc. And then say that you work for a bank or an insurer. How does your system or solution communicate with the rest of the applications or IT infrastructure that they have there? Is it an API they just plug into whatever core banking they have or how does that work yeah so we've always tried to look cloudy even in a kind of on-premise environment so we've always had a rest-based api but we build a lot of our own connectors anyway so we have connectors into telephony systems into email systems into chat systems and into review systems and archiving systems. So we can we can go into a financial institution, be it a bank or an insurance company, and quite often just plug directly into a lot of the infrastructure that's already there. And our system is designed to run, we can either run on-premise, although that's less of a thing these days, but it's usually in some sort of private cloud type of environment. So a lot of companies are moving to having their own Azure environment or their own AWS environment. And we can plug directly into that. So they've got control over what's going on and the data is within their domain. That's a really important part of the deployment methodology. Great. So can you mention some success stories, especially when it relates to financial services, some of the projects or clients that you worked with? So Daiwa here in the UK, we we work with them. We actually look at both English and Japanese simultaneously for them. 
that's kind of an interesting project, that one, that there's a lot of people, particularly multinational banks, and I'm sure you saw this during your career, Rudy, they switch languages during the course of a call. So you might start off in English, you might switch to German, you might go, some people switch to French. In the case of someone like Daiwa, they go from English to Japanese and back again. So it actually enables us to, to listen into the calls for a bank like that and be able to handle their compliance requirements across multiple languages. That's the type of thing that we, that we do with the system. We've also got, we do a lot of work as well on the legal side. So my particular favorite is we actually do pro bono work in the legal sector in the US. So we work on a, a project called Justice for Change. And Justice for Change is about trying to help people who've been wrongly incarcerated in the US and try and free them from prison. So we actually have worked on a number of cases there where we've used our technology to to listen into thousands of hours of prison conversations to try and sift out where potentially people have been wrongly accused or where it has been people have actually been saying things that they shouldn't as part of that. So that's that for me has been one of the most worthwhile that we've been involved in. Wow, wonderful. So what are your plans for the rest of the year or for the years to come? Yeah, we one of one of the one of the things that's really important to me as I said is this whole concept of privacy and security. So one of the one of the things that we've been looking at is can you turn cloud processing into something which is completely encrypted end to end. I was complaining earlier about the fact that if you send your data to Google, for example, you don't know where it's gone and how it's being processed. And because that means at some point, your encrypted and sensitive data was turned into clear audio, it was then processed, and then it was sent back to you, because that's just the way these things work. And the same, you were talking about Google Docs. Google Docs, at some point, your data is viewable by Google. And it's not that they necessarily want that. It's just that's the nature of how processing has to take place. But we've been working on, on a system which enables you to do processing in the encrypted domain. So imagine that you're sitting there at the moment and you're talking to your Alexa device. And at the moment, that voice file gets sent to Amazon, it gets decrypted, it's processed, and then the actions take place. Imagine if the speech to text and all the analytics were always encrypted end to end. So actually, at no point could Amazon themselves listen into your conversation. So we've been working on this technology and we're hoping that by the end of this year, we'll be able to release that into the enterprise community. Because what that will mean is that you as a user can send your data to a cloud provider in the knowledge that the cloud provider can never read it or never hear it. So that kind of, that turns the whole paradigm on its head. Because at the moment, the cloud's great for a lot of things. It's great for storage. It's great for the fact you don't need to maintain your infrastructure, any of that, but it's really bad for privacy. So I think that's our number one goal for this year is to make that technology more widely available and start to really get people rethinking how they interact with cloud providers. Wow, great points, great insights. So before I let you go, I have two easy questions. This one is, uh, 
What is your favorite business book or another resource? There could be a YouTube channel or a Twitter account that you follow that you would recommend to people so they can follow up on some of your thoughts that you just mentioned. Ah, that's an interesting one. I'm actually, um, I read a lot of different stuff, I have to say. I don't have any one particular kind of book or channel that I recommend, but what I do is I read Medium a lot. I find that Medium, the kind of online blogging platform, is incredibly good. There's a lot of great stuff on there. And I subscribe to a number of channels which are important to me. And frankly, for those people who don't use it a lot, LinkedIn as well. Um, again, follow. I follow a lot of people on there, a wide variety of different people. And I get a lot of insights from different business leaders on there. So Medium and LinkedIn for me, are the two biggest channels for uh, for finding this stuff out. All right, great. So what's the best way for people to reach out and learn more about Intelligent Voice? As always, look at the website, intelligentvoice.com, easy to find. Also, come and see us on LinkedIn as well. I post a lot of stuff, particularly personally, about what we're doing. For some reason, whenever I'm traveling, I tend to take a travel selfie of wherever I am. And that seems to resonate with people who are kind of interested to see the stupid places I find myself in. And otherwise, Twitter as well. But you know, LinkedIn and, and the website, please come and take a look and then get in touch. All right. Wonderful. Thank you, Nigel, so much. And good luck to you and Intelligent Voice. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests, or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.